You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Security firms warn of Iran's growing cyber capabilities and Tehran's disposition to use them. Gossips and activists far outdo bots in spreading disinformation. The memcache kill switch should be approached with legal caution. Slingshot espionage tools have been active quietly in the Middle East and Africa for six years. Fancy Bear sniffs at Asia. And Australia is concerned about Chinese espionage and influence operations. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Monday, March 12, 2018. Iran may be showing greater cyber capabilities and a correspondingly larger disposition to use them for espionage and surveillance, The Hill reports. Researchers at security firm Symantec have seen an expansion of activity into Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Security company FireEye is tracking two Iranian threat groups, APT-33 and APT-34. APT-33 has been linked to destructive wiper attacks, while APT-34 has so far been busy with reconnaissance of critical infrastructure targets. The University of Toronto's Citizen Lab says that Egypt, Syria, and Turkey are adapting Sandvine products to install spyware and cryptojackers. Sandvine says it's got nothing to do with it. Bots have their uses in spreading disinformation over social media, but an MIT study suggests human gossips are overwhelmingly more active in doing so. Demonstrably false claims are jumped on, retweeted with delight by the enthusiastic and the committed. Exploitation of memcache for DDoS attacks continues to worry security experts. There's also some concern over a kill switch Carrero found last week. As reported in several news outlets, Carrero thinks the kill switch, a flush-all command, could provide a counter to very high-volume attacks the exploit can generate. But the register asks, is flush-all the cavalry or questionably legal interference in someone else's computer? Cloudflare and Arbor Networks told eWeek that flushing-all would amount to changing the contents of a non-cooperating computer. And, of course, that's illegal in many places. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission recently released revised cybersecurity guidance for publicly traded companies. The last time the SEC weighed in with guidance on cybersecurity was in 2011. And, of course, a lot has changed since then, with larger and more frequent high-profile breaches of public companies. Dr. Christopher Pearson is CEO of Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors and a frequent contributor to the CyberWire, and he weighs in on what the new guidance means. Really what this is is it's supplemental guidance. It's meant to provide further interpretation on the original guidance. And what it really does is it, it kind of, if you wanted to, you could break it down to three different areas. It talks about cybersecurity risks in terms of 
you publicly traded company must dimension the risks, understand them, have policies and procedures around it, and update the public, the investor community, uh, those people that you have a duty to. Uh, you must go ahead and update that continually as those things change. Second, this whole area of insider trading. Insider trading programs, they're fairly common within publicly traded companies. Uh, what this guidance said and makes abundantly clear is any type of trading that happens around, surrounding, just before the announcement, just after the announcement of a data breach, of a cybersecurity incident, needs to be looked over with especial scrutiny, and there needs to be policies and procedures around this, and you companies must own this. And then third, the area of governance. Um, <laughs> the SEC, I mean, really, they pretty much have ask two questions here. They say, you board, what is your role in cybersecurity and cybersecurity risks, incidents, issues, and how are you engaging with senior management, with leadership on cybersecurity? That's what the new interpretive guidance really focuses on, those three areas. This is a wake-up call for all public companies, the senior management, and the boards, specifically the chairperson of the board, the chairperson of the audit committee, if they have it, the chairperson of the risk committee, to actually ask themselves the fundamental questions. What role is the board playing in cybersecurity? And how is it engaging with, uh, with senior management? Uh, that is something that I don't think that they're going to be able to escape. And they're actually going to have to work with in-house counsel, with outside experts, with CISOs, uh, both at uh, CISOs that are at the company and outside experts uh, to go ahead and formulate a plan and a strategy around this. What we have seen as a result of, I mean, if you think about Yahoo, they disclosed their breaches in, in uh, late uh, 2016, uh, in September, and then later on in late October, early November 2016, but then up the numbers to essentially in 2017, midway through, saying everyone had been breached. That's one example of a publicly traded company that's involved in a merger and acquisition transaction, uh, making a dramatic change and dramatic announcement. Uh, and the board and the SEC does say, hey, look, if things change, we understand that. We know that things are not going to be perfect. We know they're going to change. You have a duty to update it if there's a material change. And I would argue many there. And then separately with Equifax, we all know about the potential allegations uh, around insider trading or inappropriate trades or trades that uh, are circumspect. Uh, but I think the most recent items are uh, serving as a, a great impetus for the SEC uh, in this regard. So the SEC comes out with this guidance. Uh, I'm a member of a board. What kinds of questions should I be asking at my next board meeting? Yeah, Dave, that's a great question. So, so I mean, realistically, they should be immediately determining who has governance over the cybersecurity risk programs. Uh, where is that coming in from? Is it coming in from audit? Is it coming in through an enterprise risk management committee? Uh, where is the CISO reporting? Where is the CIO reporting? Um, how is that reporting uh, relationship going? What times have the have uh, cybersecurity incidents and risks been addressed by the board? How long have those people been in the board meetings? I mean, there's some definitely some more statistical uh, analysis that can be done here in terms of is the board receiving and seeing the right people regarding cybersecurity risks? Secondarily, are they actually, when they do see those people, when they do have that information come forward at a strategic level, are they receiving the right type of information? Are they taking action in the right manner? Uh, do they have the right types of auditing and reporting and, and procedures there? Uh, and how exactly is the board then interfacing back with management? It's not enough that this be a one-way street. It has to be a bi-directional street. They have to be communicating with senior management about cybersecurity risks, about strategic things that it should be looking at, 
and also what things are coming over the horizon in terms of cybersecurity risks to the business, to the enterprise. So really, it's the analyze what is currently going on in terms of structure, meetings, people that are reporting in on this topic and subject. Uh, second, try to figure out from a governance and reporting standpoint, is that working? Is it efficient? Also, from an education standpoint, is the board well-educated on cybersecurity and how to actually govern it? And finally, probably one of the biggest things, and, and I think we're going to see this change and just very much so in the way that Sarbanes-Oxley did, is who on the board, when they look to the left, when they look to the right, or look around that big tab- circular table, uh, who on the board is actually the cybersecurity expert? I think that we know who the financial experts are because we have to under Sarbanes-Oxley, but who is actually the member of the board that is leading the charge strategically and governance-wise on cybersecurity? Those would be some of the basic questions to start out with. That's Dr. Christopher Pearson from Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors. Kaspersky Lab has described Slingshot, cyber espionage malware, that for six years has quietly infested systems in the Middle East and Africa. The researchers call it sophisticated and stealthy, an elegant product, they think, of a nation-state. They don't say which nation-state, but they do note that the debug code is written in pretty good English. A Kaspersky study also sees a shift toward Asia in Sophocy's interest. Sophocy is also known as APT28, Tsar Team, and Fancy Bear. Kaspersky describes the group as pragmatic, measured, and agile. Also, it's Russian-speaking. Those who think the bears have gone into hibernation as far as Western targets are concerned, however, shouldn't get too cocky. The UK is considering sanctioning Russia for the attempted assassination in England of former GRU officer and MI6 spy Sergei Skripal. Many think sanctions would prompt Russian retaliation by cyber attack. A number of British officials, including some senior military leaders, have been warning about the country's vulnerability to cyber attack, with particular concerns for critical infrastructure, and so considerations of how to handle possible retaliation aren't idle. Russia has denied involvement in the attempted poisoning by nerve agent of Skripal and his daughter, while simultaneously suggesting that Skripal had it coming, and that other potential turncoats should take heed and take warning. Smerchpionum, death to spies, whence comes the acronym Schmersch of Stalin's secret police and James Bond villain fame, apparently continues to animate Russian counterintelligence policy. It would seem difficult to have it both ways. There is at least some cognitive dissonance between it's provocation, we didn't do nothing, and see, that's what spies get. Australia's Ministry of Defense has banned use of the Chinese-manufactured app WeChat on its personnel's office phones. There are two concerns here. First, what the MOD sees as careless data exposure through the app, and second, the strong suspicion that WeChat is firmly in the pocket of the Chinese government and so in the pocket of Chinese intelligence services. Australian concerns over Chinese influence operations are at least as strong as American worry about Russian opinion sharing. Foreign Affairs characterizes the influence as including inducements, threats, and plausible deniability. The problematic behavior includes buying access and influence through political donations, such donations being routed through third-party cutouts, co-option of Australian universities as propaganda vehicles, and diversion of Australian scientific research to the benefit of People's Liberation Army modernization. 
There's even been a full-blown political scandal in the Senate, as one-time up-and-coming labor star Senator Dastiare resigned in January after getting support from a donor linked to the Chinese Communist Party and publicly retailing Beijing's South China Sea talking points. China's President Xi, by the way, has just been installed as effectively leader for life with the repeal of presidential term limits. But this grant of tenure came after a parliamentary vote of approval, so it's all good, right? Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, you know, in the time since the uh, Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities came to pass, we've discussed them, but uh, I, I thought it might be interesting to dig into some of the technical details with you uh, and, and get your perspective on it. What do you have to share? Yeah, these are really fascinating uh, vulnerabilities, actually, or, or bugs that have been discovered. And what's really interesting about them is, number one, uh, how deep they go, uh, because they're basically, um, they basically arise from ways that the uh, processors on a lot of our computers uh, have been made to work. And so from that point of view, they're really uh, just about everywhere. Uh, and it's also very difficult to uh, get rid of them or to, or to patch them. Uh, another thing that's really interesting about it is just the way that the vulnerabilities arose and, and the, uh, the causes for those vulnerabilities. Let's dig into some of the details there. What do you mean by that specifically? 
So one of the ways that modern processors work, and and, uh, they do this in order to optimize their performance, is they do something called branch prediction. So this, uh, at a high level here, basically means that if you have uh, like an if statement, you know, if x equals 1, do one thing, and if x equals uh, 0, do another, uh, what your processor might do is actually execute both of those instructions uh, until it can figure out which one of those was the correct path that it should have taken. So it'll execute both of those in parallel, and that way immediately when you figure out what the value of x is, you can go ahead and take the right result. And then the processor is uh, supposed to throw away uh, the result taken on the other branch, right, which is no longer needed. Hmm. And uh, the flaw basically was that even though the processor would do that correctly and would erase the data that it computed on the on the branch that wasn't taken, there would be a residue in memory based on that branch, based, based on the non-taken branch. And that residue in memory could, for example, uh, involve cryptographic keys or, or other cryptographic material. And then uh, researchers were able to show that they were, in fact, able to get access to that data through another complicated mechanism, that, that kind of a, a side point here almost. Um, but they were able to show that they were able to get access to that data. And thereby, even though the data was uh, computed on a branch that was never actually taken, the researchers were still able to get access to that. So it's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that it was such a sort of a fundamental part of computer science. I mean, people are saying that you know, textbooks are being rewritten based on these discoveries. Yeah, that's right. So, so this idea of branch prediction is a relatively old idea, I guess around 20 or even maybe 30 years old. And it's fundamental in uh, the way computer architectures are designed nowadays. Um, and people just never thought about the security implications of that. So cer- certainly people weren't thinking in that direction 30 years ago. And even uh, until, you know, six months ago, people didn't just didn't think of the security implications of that. And so now people are going to have, go, have to go back to the drawing board and think about how they can square the uh, processor optimizations with the, uh, the need for security. And do you think this is going to trigger a, a whole new line of research of people you know, going and, and going back and looking at the fundamentals to see if, if there are security issues you know, lurking within? Yeah, exactly. I think it's on both sides, actually. It'll, it'll involve researchers looking at the existing architectures and seeing whether or not they're vulnerable. And then it'll also involve uh, architecture experts looking at the current designs and seeing how they can fix them to make sure that they're not actually vulnerable. All right. That's interesting stuff. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.